0: Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 24th episode of the Brit Podcast. I wanted to get right into some polls that came out over the last week or so, particularly two that are touching on some issues that are top of mind for Canadians over the last few days. The first poll I wanted to look at is from Leger. This was done for the Canadian press between December 3rd and 5th, surveying 1,547 Canadians online. The poll had some questions about the new Omicron variant. And people's thoughts about how to fight it. There was wide support, over 80%, for mandatory testing for all travelers coming to Canada and closing the borders to travelers from affected countries. There was less support, but still two thirds, in favor of reintroducing some new restrictions in Canada and for closing the border with the United States. This is really in line with a lot of the polling we've seen about the pandemic for the last nearly two years. Canadians generally favor doing more than less which might explain why the federal government decided it had to move so quickly to restrict travel from southern Africa. Support for a a vaccine passport remains very high at 80%, no change from a few weeks ago, and just 18% of Canadians say they would be in favour of lifting all restrictions right now. Perhaps not surprisingly, 60% of non-vaccinated Canadians would like to see those restrictions lifted right away. In terms of satisfaction with the measures governments have put in place to fight the pandemic, 62% say they are satisfied with the federal government's performance here, including a majority in all regions of the country. Provincial governments get high marks in British Columbia, Quebec, and throughout Atlantic Canada, while a slim majority are satisfied with the performance of their governments in Ontario and the Prairies. In Alberta, however, only 26% are satisfied with the measures put in place by Jason Kenney's government. And since the Winter Olympics in Beijing have been a topic of conversation recently, let's take a look at a new Angus Reid Institute poll on the issue. It was in the field between November 26th and 29th, surveying 2005 Canadians online. On Wednesday, the Trudeau government announced that Canada would be doing a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. The poll, which was obviously done before this announcement, found that 53% of Canadians would support a diplomatic boycott. Just 40% support a boycott by athletes, while 22% said they did not support a boycott of any kind. Politically, opinion is pretty consistent across partisan lines, though support for a diplomatic boycott was highest among Liberal and NDP supporters. 73% of Canadians, though, they agree that it's unrealistic that anything Canada does will change China's behavior. And even 58% said they are, quote, worried about the economic consequences of standing up to China. Including majority of conservative voters, despite that party often taking a hard line on China, we've seen as well that concern about China is increasing. A poll by Abacus Data, which was done in October, uh, found that 54% of Canadians see the emergence of China as a world power as a major threat. Another 27% say minor threat, but this share of people who think it's a major threat is up 25 points since 2018. So this is clearly something that more Canadians are thinking about. Another big riser was global climate change. 60% see it as a major threat. That's up eight points. The ones that dropped, uh, Islamic extremist groups down eight points. North Korea's nuclear program down nine points. And growing authoritarianism in Russia also down nine points. So you can see that over the last few years, some of the things that maybe we were concerned about, terrorism, North Korea, Russia... Uh, Not as much of an issue now as it is compared to climate change, which remains a huge threat for Canadians and uh, China, China becoming more of a threat than it was perceived to be just a few years ago. So it seems the government adopted the course of action that was likely to prove the most popular among Canadians, though these numbers do suggest that Canadians' views on this issue are a little complicated. Okay, I wanted to get to the questions and answers. Got a, a lot of good ones, and uh, we'll start with one from James Foster. He asked, what percentage amount of support do you think Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney will need in their respective leadership reviews to stay on as party leaders? One bit of news that just came out over the last 24 hours or so is that the request to move up the leadership review for Jason Kenney uh, seems to have been denied by the United Conservative Party, so Kenney will only be facing that leadership review in April. Aaron O'Toole is only scheduled to face his review in 2023. But what would the mark be for either of those leaders to stay? If you remember back before Thomas Mulcair was removed as leader of the NDP, there's a lot of talk about what percentage number he would have to get. In the end, he got less than 50%, which obviously means you got to go. But for Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney, it'll be interesting to see what kind of numbers they telegraph as what they'll be hoping to get. Now, if you're trying to look at some historical precedents of the kind of leadership scores you need to get to remain as leader, I think the most famous case and the one that really set the standard was Joe Clark, who was leader of the Federal Progressive Conservatives. In 1983, he ran for his own job, eventually losing it to Brian Mulroney, after he only got 67%. Now, 67% is a lot more than 50 but for Joe Clark, he saw that as a sign that he did not have good handle on the party and uh, needed to have a leadership contest to re-establish his leadership of the PCs, which he failed to do. Some other cases, John Turner, who was leader of the Liberals in 1986, after losing the 1984 election very, very badly, uh, there was a leadership review then, he got 76%, and that was good enough for him to stay. And he stayed, of course, until the uh, until after the 1988 election. But 76% was also not good enough for uh, Bernard Landry, leader of the Parti Québécois, in 2005. He got that in a leadership review and thought it wasn't good enough, and he quit. Uh, It gets a little complicated as well. If we're looking at Alberta, in the case of Jason Kenney, the precedents that have been set there, both Ed Stalmack and Alison Redford got 77% in their leadership reviews. And in both cases, they stayed on, but not for much longer, it was clearly a sign that they did not have as much of a hold on the party as maybe they would have liked. Ralph Klein, he got only 55% in 2006, so resigned a few months after that. But I think if you're looking at all of these numbers, the art stick is at least 70%. If you get 70%, I think that you are in a pretty good spot to stay on. But... You're not necessarily in a strong position as a leader unless you're getting over 80%. I think that 70 to 80% is one of those scores that is good enough to stay around, but gives a pretty strong message that um, you know your leadership is in some trouble. If you're under 70%, it's hard to stay if you get that. So I think for both Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenny, when their leadership reviews come around they will probably be aiming to get over 70%. And if they want to have a strong showing, they want to be over 80. I got these two mirror image questions from regular questioners, Christopher J. and Writing of the Day. Christopher asked, Any provincial MPPs, MLAs you see making the jump to federal politics? And Writing of the Day asked, Any federal MPs you see making the jump to provincial politics? A la Jason Kenney. Well, the answer to both is really the same. The federal election just happened. So anyone planning to make the jump to provincial politics is probably too close to just having sought a mandate to justify resigning their seat to try to run provincially. And those seeking to make the jump to federal politics have a long time to wait before the next election before they bother resigning their seat. So I think at the moment it is, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I think it's too close to the federal election to really see which MPs might be eyeing a provincial run and which provincial politicians might be eyeing a jump to uh, federal politics. Fredo rockwell asked in the uk the prime minister the chancellor of the exchequer the home secretary and the foreign secretary are called the great offices of state only james callahan has held all four is there a similar concept in canada's cabinet and is there a similar record holder i'm not sure if i've ever heard of anything like that uh, you know traditionally talked about in canadian politics it's if there is i'm not aware of it And we also don't really have a Home Secretary. Uh, We used to have a Minister of the Interior, which has a somewhat similar role uh, to the Home Secretary. But nowadays, the jobs that the Home Secretary has, which includes law enforcement, includes immigration, includes national security, it's spread across different portfolios. But the question did make me wonder, which of our Prime Ministers have actually held the most Cabinet portfolios? Either before or after they became prime minister. Now I went through the list, and the one who comes out on top is Jean-Creche. He held nine different portfolios over the course of his time in office, and he held some pretty big ones. You know, he was the secretary of state for external affairs, which is what we used to call the foreign affairs minister. Uh, he was minister of justice, minister of finance. Minister of National Revenue. Um, he was president of the Treasury Board. He handled the Indigenous file, he was known as the Minister of Indian Affairs at the time. Uh, so he held the most portfolios. But if we're trying to find the ones that have these great offices of state, as they might have in the United Kingdom, he has held External Affairs, Finance and Justice, if we consider that to be the equivalent of the Home Secretary. So he might actually fill that role. But the only one who seems to have held the equivalent portfolios was R.B. Bennett. Now, he was the Secretary of State for External Affairs while he was Prime Minister in the 1930s, but he also held the role of the Minister of Finance and the Minister of the Interior in Arthur Meehan's government in 1926, but also he was the Minister of Finance in the first few years of his government in the 1930s. So he has held those four portfolios, being uh, the equivalent of the Home Secretary, Foreign Affairs, Finance, and he was the Prime Minister. In all, he held seven portfolios, which puts some tied with uh, Charles Tupper with seven in terms of prime ministers who held the most. After that, you have Mackenzie Bowl who had six. Arthur Meehan also held six different portfolios. Wilfred Laurier held five. John A. MacDonald held five. John Turner held five. Kim Campbell held four. Joe Clark held four. Mackenzie King had three. Louis Saint Laurent had three. Robert Borden, John Diefenbaker, and Paul Martin Each held two, as did Justin Trudeau and Pierre Trudeau. And then finally, a few prime ministers held one single portfolio, John Abbott, Alexander Mackenzie, John Thompson, Lester Pearson. Two that held no portfolios were actually Stephen Harper and Brian Mulroney. They didn't hold another portfolio. You look at Justin Trudeau, he was, if you remember, the Minister for Youth and the Minister for Intergovernmental Affairs. Not exactly portfolios that have an actual ministry or anything like that, uh, but they are still cabinet positions. But uh, you do see that it is something that was more common in the past that prime ministers actually were often their own foreign affairs minister. Sometimes they were uh, the finance minister while they were also uh, the prime minister. Uh, whereas nowadays, the prime minister generally only holds that title. Uh, you look at Jean Chrétien, uh, all of the portfolios he held were during the you know, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s when he was a cabinet minister and not when he was the prime minister. But to answer the question, the James Callaghan equivalent in Canada seems to have been R.B. Bennett, even if some of those portfolios he held for a very, very, very short amount of time. Jeff Hitchcock asks We talked a bit about the Ontario First Party splitting votes away from the Progressive Conservatives in Ontario. Can we also talk about the Greens' impact on Liberal NDP leaning ridings? Certainly, Mike Schreiner's upset win in Guelph took a safeish Liberal seat. What else could they do in 2022? So we're not seeing a lot of big numbers for the Green Party in Ontario polling. They're usually somewhere around 5 or 6%. They got just under 5% of the vote in 2018. So it doesn't seem at this stage that they're in a good position to be more of a factor than they were back in 2018. And we've seen on the leadership polling for Mike Schreiner that he remains a non-entity for a majority of Ontarians. They don't really know who he is. They don't know much about him. Um, so at this stage, you would look at where things are, and you would think that the Greens are probably not going to have a big role in the upcoming election. If you're trying to look at a place where the Greens could make a breakthrough, in addition to Mike Trainer's seat in Guelph, Kitchener Center would be an obvious candidate because that is where the federal Greens just won a seat. So it was only a few months ago that a lot of people in Kitchener Center voted for the Green Party. Now, a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Liberal candidate had to withdraw from the race, but it just might be a habit forming And if you were the Green Party of Ontario, you would look at a seat like Kitchener Centre and try to get those people who just voted for the Green Party of Canada to keep their votes green in the upcoming provincial election. Beyond that, though, Kitchener Centre and Guelph, it's really hard to find a seat where the Ontario Greens could have an impact. There's no other riding in Ontario where the federal Greens finished second or even third. And they lost a lot of support in a seat like Guelph. So the base has really been weakened by the federal election results. And in 2018, in the provincial election in Ontario, the Greens were second in no ridings. They won Guelph, they finished first there, and then they finished third in a number of ridings. They do have some strength historically and traditionally, which I've always found a little bit of an interesting kind of puzzle, is that the Greens have had strength around Georgian Bay. But all of those seats are pretty safe for the PCs, so there isn't much of a prospect for the Greens to win them or to be a spoiler because the PCs already hold them. So... I'm not expecting a huge amount from the Greens in this campaign. I think that it'll be a win if they can hold on to Guelph and make inroads so that in the next election, they might have a place they can identify as their potential second seat. Uh, But Kitchener Senate would be the one to watch to see if the federal results have any impact on support for the Ontario Greens. I also got a question via email from Peter Ryan. He asked uh, about the upcoming Quebec election next year. He said, based on the polls, I'm curious the extent to which the high CAQ numbers in Montreal among Francophone voters could give them a shot at some mixed areas of the city. I'm thinking places like Saint-Laurent or montreal Outremont, where there are a solid contingent of French speakers and upper-income earners that likely appreciate Legault's approach to fiscal matters and language. So this was an interesting question, and I tried to find some writings where... There's a significant Anglophone population or at least non-Francophone population to see if the CEQ could make some inroads on the island of Montreal. So I took the most recent poll that was done by Leger. It had the CEQ at 52% support among Francophones and 23% support among non-Francophones. So I applied those numbers and as well as the Liberals' numbers on language to the demographic profile of ridings. So just more or less assuming that the Francophones in every riding on the island of Montreal would vote, 52% of them would vote for the CEQ, and 23% of non-Francophones would vote also for the CAQ. Now, obviously, this isn't a perfect way to look at things because the profile of Francophone voters uh, on the island of Montreal would be different from Francophone voters in the rest of the province, but I think it does give you an indication of some benchmarks. And generally, writings that are less than 60% non-Francophone become winnable for the CAQ with these kinds of numbers. So on the island of Montreal, that means writings like Acadie, jean mance Vigier, Marguerite Bourgeois, and Marquette, and it also means mont royal Outremont, which is one mentioned by Peter. It's 48% non-Francophone, so based on language numbers alone, you would give the CAQ 38% of the vote to 32% for the Liberals. So it is theoretically winnable for the CAQ. Now, a lot of the Francophone vote might actually go for Quebec Solidaire in a riding like Mont-Royal-Outrement, considering that outremont has generally been a decent riding for the federal NDP. But it does show you that the demographic profile of a riding like that is one that makes it technically winnable for the CAQ because of their huge support among francophones and their decent support among non-francophones. Saint Laurent would be tougher. It's 61% non-francophone. So by language only, you would still give the Liberals a bit of an edge. And so I think this shows that uh, the Liberals can't take all of their West Island seats for granted. Yes, the ones that are 70 80% non-francophone, they're going to probably stick with the Liberals. It'd be a shock if they didn't. But they can't take for granted that all of them will stay with the Liberals, particularly since their share of support among Anglophones has actually dropped quite a bit. Um, compared to the final leger poll of 2018, which overestimated Liberal support, the Liberals have dropped by about 10 points among Anglophones. So if their support has dropped among Anglophones and they have very low support among Francophones, those predominantly Anglophone writings on the island of Montreal... Some of them could become much more competitive than they've been maybe since the days of the Equality Party in 1989. So this will be the last regular episode of the RIT Podcast for 2021. I'll have a special episode that I'm really looking forward to next week. Uh, So that'll close out the year. But I thought I'd take a moment in this segment and this final segment of the Every Election Project for 2021 to mark the elections that were held this close to the holiday season throughout Canadian history between December 10th and December 30th there have been 15 federal and provincial elections held None, though, were very recent. The most recent election held this late in the year was in 1975, when British Columbia went to the polls on December 11th, returning social credit to power after one term of NDP government. In general, though, most of these late elections were held a long time ago. Of the 15, seven were held in the 19th century and a lot of them were held in Manitoba. I can't imagine the weather is reliably good in December in Manitoba, but the province has held two elections on December 16th, one on December 18th, one on December 27th, and even one on December 30th. With the exception of an election 1962, though, all of these were held in the 1870s and 1880s. PI also liked December elections once upon a time, holding one each on December 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th. Are Canadians forgiving of a holiday election? Well, a lot of those Manitoba elections were before a party system was in place, but of those with party systems, there were only two changes of government, that BC election 1975 and a PEI election in 1893, while in eight of these elections, the party in power was returned with a majority government. Perhaps the most famous election to be held at the tail end of the year was in 1917. This was the conscription election held in the midst of the First World War when Robert Borden's conservatives formed a union government with pro-conscription liberals and really divided the country between English and French. Even going so far as putting out election advertisements that claimed a vote for Wilfrid Laurier was a vote for the German Kaiser. Outside of Quebec, the Conservative Unionists won 150 seats to just 20 for Laurier's Liberals, and many of those came in areas with significant French-Canadian populations. In Quebec, the Liberals won 62 seats against just 3 for Borden, with over a quarter of those Quebec Liberals running unopposed. Despite its divisive ugliness, the 1917 election is noteworthy for being the first where some women were given the right to vote in federal elections, but they had to be related to soldiers fighting overseas or serving themselves. This was an electorate that the pro-conscription Conservatives thought they could count on to cast ballots in favour of their party. It was just one of several ways that the Conservatives tipped the scales to ensure the re-election in 1917. There's a great book written on this election by Patrice Dutille called Embattled Nation, Canada's Wartime Election of 1917. If you're looking for something to read over the holidays, it's not very light, but it is still a pretty interesting book. Okay, that'll be it for this week. I'll be back next week with a special episode of the podcast be sure to check out therit.ca for all the latest and please give this podcast a rating or review which can help others find it all right so have a good weekend and thanks for listening